Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 6, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Um, If you're using one of the church Bibles, the passage is on page 571, and if you're using a large print version, not sure how you know that you've got a large print version if you don't have the small print version as well, but if it's a large print version, you'll find on page 678. The one thing lacking is a hand-warming version today. Um, And uh, I will have enough aerobics and preaching, I think, to keep warm. But I'm very sensitive to your needs. So if you need to do the occasional shoulder roll or tap your feet or do some things with your hands, as long as you you don't sit and go, uh, then I will not be distracted. And I hope I can be sensitive to uh, the fact that Trinity does not manage to afford heat for us. I don't think that's always the case, nor I should reassure those of you who may be here for the first time, I don't think that if you become a member, they insist that you preach on your first Sunday in the church, I think. I think you can relax about that. Well, let's read this great passage from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I think you'll understand there's a very obvious reason for the title of these sermons today and next Lord's Day, the year a monarch died. But there's also something that may not be quite so obvious for most of us. And it's this, that in the midst of all the media coverage that we have had of the Queen's death, there has been something fairly obviously lacking from a Christian's point of view. 
And perhaps it's something actually that has also become lacking from the Christian church. If you went back to the death of the Queen's father, you would find that the great preachers of the day almost all preached sermons marking the occasion. Not just because it was a national occasion, but because they had developed a practice that goes back hundreds of years among spiritually minded people of asking questions about both personal incidents and national occasions. How can we improve this occasion? That was the language they used. Not that they thought they would make it better as an event, but how can we see divine significance? If we believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that God is providentially in control of everything, is it not appropriate that we ask questions about what does God mean me to learn under these circumstances? What does God mean us to learn? And certainly uh, until the days when example great preachers like Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps the greatest preacher of the 20th century, would mark the monarch's passing with a sermon to improve the occasion. That whole spiritual discipline, I think, has by and large disappeared from the Christian church in general, certainly from the media, and also, I suspect, from many of our Christian lives. And that's why, for obvious reasons, I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and also for this reason. Because what happens in Isaiah chapter 6, very obviously, is the way in which the death of a king was, to use that language, improved for the prophet Isaiah. Now, I don't think anyone would say that there are exact parallels between the death of the king Isaiah, of whom we read in verse 1, and the death of Queen Elizabeth. But there are some striking parallels. One is that both came to the throne when they were extraordinarily young. Isaiah was even younger than Queen Elizabeth was. Both came to the throne also, and by and large, the population said they had good and successful reigns. But it would be true, I think, of both of these reigns, Isaiah and Queen Elizabeth, that the latter part of their reigns were marked by particular and very public sadnesses. In the case of Isaiah, we're told in Second Chronicles 26 that when he became strong, he grew proud. He overstepped his authority. And for the rest of his life, he was struck with leprosy. And that marked the rest of his reign with sadness. I think it would be true most of us who are of an age would recognize that the last section, almost the last third of Queen Elizabeth's reign, was punctuated by a series of sadnesses and very public sadnesses and even public humiliations just as Isaiah experienced public humiliations. One of the Old Testament commentators of a previous generation described Isaiah's reign as a glorious reign with a ghastly end, marked by this 
tremendous sense of sadness. And it seems this is the reason why, at this point in his prophecy, Isaiah interjects his remarkable experience in the presence of God. Uh, The scholars have debated for centuries now whether this is Isaiah's original call or whether this is a, a new experience that comes upon him in his ministry. And my own Uh, suspicion is it's the latter rather than the former. He's not the only man engaged in prophecy in the Old Testament who in the middle of his ministry finds himself seeing things that he hadn't seen before in order that he may be something he hasn't been before. And I think there are reasons in the whole flow of these opening chapters of Isaiah that give us this sense that it was in the anus horribilis, to use Queen Elizabeth's expression from yesteryear, that God improved for him the national circumstances in his personal experience. And the really significant thing is that what's described in these first verses of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, is what God believed was necessary for Isaiah if his ministry was going to extend into the future. Um, There's another very interesting parallel actually between the reign of Elizabeth II and the reign of uh, King Isaiah, and that is that it was during that reign, not necessarily because of that reign, but during that reign that the spirituality of the church manifestly collapsed. And the opening five chapters of the prophecy are all about the implications of that collapse. And certainly no one in my generation, no one living in Aberdeen in my generation would be left in any doubt touring the cities and seeing the monuments to a past glory that hid an internal spiritual decay. No one in their right mind could deny that there has been the collapse of the Christian church, the collapse of the Christian faith. And I have very little doubt that some of you have been asking the question, when, if ever, will we hear a British monarch speak in public about Jesus Christ not only as example, but also as happened more laterally in the Queen's reign, specifically, quite pointedly, very bravely, very counterculturally, as Saviour. Do you think that is going to happen again this Christmas? It would be astonishing if it did. Do you think it's going to happen into the future? And this was what Isaiah found himself facing. As I say, not exact parallels, but enough hints to show us that where we are as a Christian church, where we are as a Christian fellowship, is not altogether dissimilar from where God's people have been in the past. And the issue here for Isaiah, the issue here in his relationship with God, is how is God going to improve this to him? 
Because there is no question when you read through the whole of Isaiah's amazing and magnificent and eloquent prophecy that this really is the heart of the man's life. From this point onwards, by and large, Isaiah's favorite way of speaking about God is that he is the Holy One. And that's always an indication of something that has happened in a preacher's life, in an individual's life. That when God marks their lives, it comes out in, yes, in the distinctives of their lives, in the distinctives of their service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, not, none of us is capable of expressing the whole of the gospel of God in our lives, in our speech. And so as you read through the scriptures, and actually as you read through church history, you begin to see that God places certain burdens on people that shape their lives, shape their service, whether it be very public like Isaiah or very private as most people in the scriptures actually are. And here, obviously, I think there are three things that improved the death of King Isaiah for the prophet Isaiah. And I hardly need to spell them out, do I? The first is the vision of God that he receives. It's a vision of God in his sovereignty. There has been a change in the monarchy. There has been at least physically a period when the throne has been unoccupied. We will not see a monarch in this country on a throne until the coronation. And Isaiah's eyes are lifted up to a throne that is permanently occupied. To remind him in the midst of all the spiritual decline he has described in the first five chapters, that God is still on the throne. And as some of you will have learned in Sunday school, he will remember his own. He has not vacated his throne. He moves in mysterious ways as he exercises his sovereignty. None of us has the ability to tell perfectly how it is that God assesses our nation's life or even our individual personal lives. But Isaiah's eyes are being lifted up beyond the awful situation of the society in which he lives to recognize that God has not vacated his throne. And he is this marvelous anchor to his soul. Actually, I think it's true that one of the things unbelievers hate is the thought that God might be sovereign. How dare he be sovereign? How dare God be God? But this is the great consolation for Christian believers. Yes, there are mysteries to his providence. There are mysteries to the way in which he exercises his sovereignty and yet we remain absolutely responsible for every single thing we do. But here is where Isaiah's eyes are to be fixed on the knowledge that God is absolutely sovereign and he is safe with him. And then along the same vein, you notice something else happens. He has this vision of God's sovereignty and he begins to hear an anthem about God's sanctity. He hears these 
strange creatures chanting apparently in an antiphonal way to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's a unique uh, expression in the Old Testament, isn't it? You know that in, in the Hebrew language, in order to emphasize something, you don't press control and I on your computer. And you can't underline it or use red ink. So you just say the word twice. So, for example, when Adam and Eve are warned in the Garden of Eden, they're told, dying you shall die, which usually translated to something like, you will surely die. But this is the only place, I think, in the Old Testament where there is not only a repetition, but a double repetition. And actually, it's so intriguing. Um, it's actually difficult to know how you pronounce these words. Is it holy, holy, holy? Or does it more have the sense that as these seraphim pronounce the word holy, as soon as they've pronounced it and been caught up into the reality that is before them of the holiness of God, it, it's as though the word is driven out of their souls again because it's almost as though they're saying, I said it, but I didn't understand it. And every time they say it, it's in the light of this amazing holiness of God. And the whole picture helps us to understand that holiness, doesn't it? Um, there's a wonderful hymn by an old uh, hymn writer by the name of Thomas Binney. Uh, Drew will be very familiar with it. Eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be. And as a verse in it that speaks about the spirits that surround the throne may bear the burning bliss, but they have never, ever known a fallen world like this. It is a magnificent verse, but you know, it's not actually wholly true. The portrayal here that Isaiah sees is of seraphim who feel that they're not actually able to bear the burning bliss. And so they cover their faces, they cover their feet, even as with their other two wings, they maintain a kind of stability in God's presence. And it's such an indication of this, that these seraphim who have never sinned, who are permanently holy, who are actually in the presence of God, in the presence of God's holiness, feel that they themselves might disintegrate if they took the veil from their eyes and took the wings from their feet. It's an indication actually that when they speak about God's holiness, they don't just mean that God is separate from sin. They are separate from sin. There's an other dimension to holiness, actually in many ways a more original dimension to holiness. And that's what God is separated for. Separated. Haven't you ever wondered why there is this threefold holy so uniquely here? That God is separated for himself, for the Father separated in devotion to the Son, the Son separated in devotion to the Father, the Father and the Son separated in, in unimaginable devotion 
to one another. I sometimes think of it like this. You know, if you, if you are in love with someone, the one thing I think you are not prepared to tolerate emotionally is that someone else looks into her eyes the way you look into her eyes. In love, that's forbidden territory. And it's almost as though these seraphim, as they, as they are stable and present in this antiphonal worship of God, are conscious that they may not look into the eyes of the Father, as it were, the way the Son looks into those eyes, or vice versa. It's an, it's an overwhelming presentation that the God who is sovereign is also magnificently holy. And actually that's what we need to understand, that he is magnificently holy in the glory of his amazing sovereignty. And there's another thing here on which I mustn't pause, and that is that Isaiah is learning a great lesson in humility. The veiling of the face, the flapping of the wings in serving the Lord, the covering of the feet. It's humility, 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 as St. Augustine said, was the essence of serving the Lord. And you see, it's doing something, isn't it? It's doing something to Isaiah. And it's doing something magnificent in his life. He'll never be the same again. And in a way, you know, this is, this is a large-scale working model of how God works in an individual's life whom he means to use monumentally. Uh, but it's also a template for the way in which he wants to work in our lives to improve for us a day when a throne is vacated, that we may through this be drawn out of ourselves to his word to come to know him in his majesty. And it leads to a second movement, doesn't it, in these verses? A vision of God on his throne, a confession of sin from the lips of Isaiah. And there is this overwhelming sense Isaiah has of He's meeting with God. Uh, that it feels as though the place is disintegrating, doesn't it? The threshold shakes, feels like a kind of spiritual earthquake to him. And it affects Isaiah in all of his senses. Yeah, the old five senses and the new seven senses uh, that most of us a certain generation know nothing about. His whole being is caught up in this. And at the very center of it, you'll notice that he feels undone. And two things follow. One is, let me put it this way, Isaiah pronounces, this sounds a bit Dan Brownish, I know. Isaiah pronounces the seventh woe. The seventh woe. Um, 
that has a kind of ring about it. The more you know scripture, the more the use of the number seven has a ring about it. But if you look back to Isaiah chapter five, you'll notice in Isaiah chapter five, Isaiah has pronounced six woes against others. Woe, 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 woe. But the seventh woe he reserves for himself. Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Um, in the fancy of my imagination, I, I think of Isaiah, if indeed this event took place in the temple, I think of him going down immediately afterwards to see his old friend Benjamin just to, he needs somebody to talk to. And saying to his old friend, Benjamin, Benjamin, I have seen the Lord. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And me, if I'm Benjamin, if I've read all the right books about counseling, I tell Isaiah, now just calm down. You're okay. You're overwrought. Maybe you're needing a holiday. You are the best preacher we've got in Jerusalem. Let's have no more talk about unclean lips. And if that were to happen, I can almost imagine Isaiah reaching over the table and picking up Benjamin and saying, you're not hearing what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, whether it's true or not that I am your best preacher in Jerusalem, the most eloquent preacher in the whole of the Old Testament scriptures, what I have discovered to my, to my sense of disintegration is that it's in my very best gift that my sinfulness has woven itself into destroying me. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's actually a hugely important thing. Um, we live in a culture where um, the mantra now is, so what are your weaknesses? Oh, they're really your spiritual strengths. And it's not very often anyone says, what do you think your spiritual strengths are? Do you realize that's where sin weaves its way in order to destroy you? And this is what Isaiah was discovering. Um, he even uses the language of leprosy, which is interesting because King Isaiah became a leper. He says, I've got leprous lips. Um, it's very, very searching. I remember reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom I mentioned uh, some minutes ago saying, do you want to know what my definition of a Christian is? Christian is a man whose mouth has been shut. He was referring to Paul's argument in Romans 3, every mouth shut. In a way, that's what's happening here. The great prophet, and he's realizing that unless God does something to him, in him, for his very best gift, the thing he wants to use more than anything else to serve the Lord. Then he is undone. 
and his mouth is shut. It's very profound and very moving. And we need to hurry on to the third thing here. The wonderful thing. The vision of God and his majesty. The confession of sin from Isaiah's lips and the experience of pardon that he describes in verses 6 and 7. This is so rich, isn't it? This live coal that comes from the altar. It's an amazing picture. The, the seraph takes the live coal from the altar of sacrifice. It's obviously a picture of the power that comes from sacrifice for sin to bring atonement for sin and forgiveness to the sinner. And the seraph does something unimaginable. He takes it with a tongue, this fiery coal. He puts it into his hand. And then with his hand, he... You, could, you, you know, if you, re, if you read this in a quiet place, I think you would tense up. He places the burning coal on Isaiah's lips. Cleanse him. Your sin is taken away. It's atoned for. It's an amazing picture. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of what the Apostle John says in 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. That's what this is about. Yes, God is generous to forgive the sins, but he doesn't forgive the sins without the sacrifice. And you would see, especially because this passage is quoted in John chapter 12, where John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's day. That what Isaiah is seeing symbolically in this amazing vision is what he saw in a way, only in black and white. But we see in historical reality and in full technicolor. That there is a Savior who has been sacrificed on the altar. And there is a Spirit of God who will bring from that altar the excruciating pain of forgiveness. I'm sure that's been true for some of you. The knowledge that your sins have been forgiven has been one of the most excruciating experiences of your life. Because it's had to go down so deep and to last so long. And so, for the rest of his ministry, it becomes clear that this is the event that now prepares him for his future ministry. It's fascinating. It's only from this point onwards that Isaiah is able to kind of look over the horizon and see that there is a Savior coming. And the rest of the prophecy is punctuated by his visions of that Savior. In chapter 7, chapter 9, Christmas passages. In chapter 11, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, chapters 52 to 53, chapter uh, 61 to 63. All passages that are taken up in the New Testament to say Isaiah saw Christ's day and was glad. And all of this on the year 
but King Isaiah died. Now, as I say, this is a very dramatic experience. But it's also a reality that, that we share in through the ministry of God's Word, isn't it? We ourselves are caught up into this as God addresses us through his word. And he teaches us also how to improve times like this. To lift up our eyes to God's sovereignty and know that we are absolutely secure no matter what. To catch a glimpse of God and his majesty and sanctity. And realize how much we need the forgiveness of sins. How easy it has been for us to point to the world and say, look at them. Deserting the Christian faith. But now to discover that there are desertions in our hearts too. And we need the forgiveness of sins. And it's only when we experience that pardon that we actually begin to be ready to hear the commission of God that fills the verses that are to follow and to send us into the future in what for Isaiah and perhaps for us were days that were inhospitable to God and to his word and to his grace and to his gospel. So 2022, a year of transition, the year Queen Elizabeth died, perhaps a year of much smaller transition for you personally, but nevertheless, in God's grace and mercy, perhaps a year that you will be able to look back on and say, and that new phase of my life began in the year that Queen Elizabeth died. Well, may that be the case for us. And God willing, we'll return to the rest of this chapter next week. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, by your word, catch us up into your presence. And you seem to do in miniature for us the very same things that we read you did in dramatic ways for others. Thank you that your scriptures are the living word of God and that as they are expounded we, we lose a sense of a human accent and begin to hear your accent. And we pray that in whatever particular ways you place your hand upon us through this passage and through this word, that like Isaiah, we will be able to respond and say, Lord, here I am, I have heard you. Now tell me what to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.